heads with me. Father God, uh, first we pray for our students that are heading back to Children's Church. Uh, Lord, they would use that time uh, to build in them a love for you. Lord, we pray for uh, us sitting in this room as we uh, open up the text of Scripture and we look to see how it would speak to us. Uh, We pray for your presence here. Uh, For without your Spirit's presence, my words are nothing more than a noisy gong. And so, Lord, meet us in this place Encourage us in this place, comfort us in this place, and challenge us in this place. For your good, for our good, and your glory. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Today we're looking at imitation, to imitate. They say that imitation is the best form of flattery. And while some imitation is done for purely comedic purposes, right? Maybe you've had someone take on your accent to make a point in a conversation or take on your mannerisms at the Thanksgiving table uh, or uh, exaggerate certain features you have to draw a laugh. Some imitation is good, right? It's just for comedic purposes. But I want you to think about it when it comes to imitation. Think about this. We are all imitators, We are all imitators. We are designed to imitate others, good and bad. Children will imitate their parents and their older siblings. In sports, if you have success or if you see someone that has success, you might imitate their actions at practice. If you see someone at work with success, maybe you will ask them what they did to achieve their success and imitate what they do in relationships, right? If you see someone with a good relationship, you might imitate what they do to make your relationship better. We are all imitators. Now, one motivation behind imitation is the desire to be approved by others, right? so that they might be proud of us, so we imitate what they have already achieved. Uh, For those of us that uh, have gone through a school system, we know that that sometimes is a good and bad thing. Sometimes we'll imitate others when maybe we shouldn't imitate those individuals, even if it has bad consequences. As I tried to build a picture for you this week, of what it looks like, what the difference is between a good imitator and a bad imitator, uh, my mind kept going back to one of the things that I study regularly, uh, which is the effect of fathers on families. Because there is a stark difference between a family with a present father and a family with an absent father. A family with a father to imitate and a family without a father to imitate. The data, is, the, the data is clear, right? For a child with an involved father, those children, children have higher success in school, better social skills, better long-term relationships, better even degrees of employment and how much money they make in life, and better self-image. That's the data, okay? For those fathers of faith, a father's involvement in church is more likely to lead to a child involvement in church as a child than if it was only the mother that attended. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we see absentee fathers. Children with absent fathers make up 63% of youth suicides, 90% of homeless and runaway children, 
71% of high school dropouts, and a staggering 85% of youth sitting in prisons. Fathers, if you didn't know this, you matter. We are all imitators. And we will imitate those good and bad traits of those around us, especially those closest to us. Let's be real. Most of us wish we had someone worth imitating. Most of us wish we had someone worth imitating for our own good. Paul understands that in the text today. That's why he makes this claim in verse 15 of chapter 4. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And the big takeaway is the verse immediately following this one, where he says this, I urge you then, be imitators of me. This culminates everything that Paul has been speaking of in the last few weeks. This week closes out the section of unity that we've spent the last month in and leadership, and it ends with a call to imitate the one who is displaying unity and good leadership. Next week, we're going to begin to look at the Corinthians' view of sex and see how sex culture mirrors much of our culture today and glean from what the scriptures will say. Um, There will probably be some sermons in the next few weeks where are more PG-13 rated. Uh, We will provide some uh, specific uh, time for students that don't fall in that category that are not in children's church. We're working on that, okay? Just so you don't get too freaked out. And I will keep it PG-13, even though the Bible sometimes doesn't. But today, we're going to start or finish our section on 1 Corinthians on unity um, and, and what it means to imitate the servants of the Lord. Uh, we're going to start, we're going to do all of 1 Corinthians 4, but let's start at the beginning. Let's just start at the beginning and we'll parse it out today. Hear the word of the Lord. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, that they be found faithful. Today, I want us to look at specific things that we can imitate that are given to us in this section. The first thing to imitate is to imitate the servant and the steward. Is to imitate the servant and the steward. I knew a student who worked at a local clothing store. Um, that worked is in the past tense. Uh, she didn't last a month for a good reason. And when she said, I don't no longer, longer work there, I can't help myself, I have to dig, right? Why don't don't you work there anymore? Well, when an item was brought to the counter without a price tag on it, many times she would try to remember the price from memory and apply that on the checkout screen. Manager didn't like that. When returns happened, even though they shouldn't have happened because they were beyond the 30-day policy, well, everyone needs grace, right? And the last point that I think was what put her over the top was when she rearranged one section of the store because it made more sense to her. Without her manager's permission. She did not view herself as a servant or a steward. And while many of us would laugh 
at the foolishness of the employee, you and I regularly act like the foolish employee. You see, we don't live as servants or stewards of the high king. We play king. We play store manager. We fall again for the serpent's lie given in the garden to our first parents when he said that you can be like God. Child of God, you are a servant and a steward. You are not the manager. Well, what is a steward? We don't use that word often enough here, right? Jesus tells a story of what a steward is, and I want us to look at that this morning because Jesus' stories, I think, are always the best stories. You might have heard this one, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. That's what a steward is, a servant who is entrusted with the master's property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had to the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in the joy. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew what? I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own, my own with interest. So take this talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who, who has will be given, more will be given. And he who will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A steward is one who is tasked by the master to care for what has been given to them. That's what a steward is. Child of God. If you have talent, it was given to you by the master. Child of God. If you have a profession, it was given to you by the master. If you have a spouse, it was given to you by the master. If you have children, it was given to you by the master. If you have finances, it was given to you by the master. If you have time, it was given to you by the master. If you have life, it was given to you by the master. How are you using it? As a steward 
or a servant or as your own manager. Now the problem with the Corinthians is they did not see themselves as servants or stewards. What they did see themselves as, as judges, really good ones. That's why they could look at Paul and Apollos and Caiaphas and judge them for their work. They thought that they could look at leadership and say, well, this is insufficient, this is sufficient. Hence why they're linking them up with the leader that they felt appropriate in their own eyes. The Corinthians are judge here. And Paul makes it clear that it is from the judgment seat that divisions are being brought to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 4, 3, and 5 continues this idea. But with me, it, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive this commendation from God. This is what Paul wants us to imitate here. Namely, imitate the defendant, not the judge. Justice has a habit of being broken in this world, does it not? We cannot turn on the internet or any news agency and not see justice not being done somewhere in the world. The Lord has a lot to say about justice. He wrote whole books of Bibles about justice. Whole books of the Bible, not whole Bible, never mind. Whole books of the Bible on justice. We are, as Christians, actually to bring justice to bear on our culture. Micah 6.8 reminds us of that. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what, the, what does the Lord require of you? What is it but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You and I are called to be good judges, good judges. Jesus speaks to this too when he talks about taking the log out of your own eye in the Sermon of the Mount. 1 Corinthians and the rest of the Bible is not saying not to judge, but Paul reminds us here, Paul is reminding us who our judge is. He's reminding us who our judge is. And this should do two things. Two things this should do. First, it gives us great comfort. It gives us great comfort. As I've shared life with many of you for the past three, four years, the stories that break my heart that you share with me is when injustice is being done against you and you can do nothing about it. Whether it be the injustice of an employer or a friend or a spouse or a child, sometimes yourself. Sometimes we're our own worst judge, are we not? And it is in those moments that we can remind ourselves that there is only one person who can truly judge us. Only one judge whose decree matters at the end of the day. And that is Christ. It is only Christ who knows our motives. It is only by the law of God that our works will be appropriately judged, not by the law of man. It is only God's refining fire 
that will show our work to be either hay or straw or gold or precious stones, to quote last week's passage. However, this is hard. This is hard. We all know this. Remember, we're wired to imitate others and seek approval from others. And that's what makes this truth so hard to cling to in times of conflict. But we need to remember who our judge is. It is in remembering that that we can find comfort. He is our judge, not the world. God is judge, not the unjust judge. But this truth should also give us great pause. While the first truth of this is that it should give us great comfort, the second is that it gives us great fear. God will judge the world. God will judge the world. Judgment is real. And you and I will face it. I was reminded of this again this week. I was finishing up reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my daughter. We're at the last battle. We just finished the book a couple of nights ago. And there's this moment within the text where at the end of it all, as Narnia, the first world of Narnia is coming to a close, and everyone lines up before Aslan, they each approach the great lion um, one by one. And in that moment, their face either turns to great fear as they're cast into utter darkness, or their face turns to great joy and love and affection as they move further up and further in in Narnia. You and I will all face a similar line and similar directions. The word of God is clear. Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul reminds us that there will be a judgment day where the sins of mankind will be brought to light. Child of God, (laughs) I needed to hear this again this week. Child of God. There is nothing hidden from the Lord. You cannot pull a fast one on King Jesus. Even our motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, A and B. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, speaking of the time of the Lord and his return, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. What is the purposes of the heart? That's a way of speaking of the motivations of man. The motivations you have. Child of God, are you in the habit of checking your own motives? Are you in the habit of checking your own motives? Why do you even do the good things that you do in life? Just the good things. Let's not even focus on the bad. Just the good things. Why do you do it? Is it to receive the applause of man to put yourself in a better position financially? Or is it to give glory to God as a servant and a steward? What is worse, many of us are not in the habit of checking our own motives, yet because like the Corinthians, we see ourselves as an adequate judge of character, are quick to place motives on other people. We don't even talk about their actions. We actually get to the heart of the issue, and we think we know exactly what they're thinking. She is only dating him to use him. He's only running for political office for personal gain. The pastor only likes his job because he loves shaming others. 
The coach never plays my kid because he's friends with the other kid's parents. The elder at the church is only in leadership for themselves. Any of those sound familiar? Maybe? Child of God. In the words of the theologian and 90s rap sensation Ice Cube, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Do not play judge. You are not God. Do not believe the serpent's lie. For all things will be disclosed on the last day, including your false judgments, which break that commandment about lying. For each one of you will receive his commendation from God. Paul continues, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you do not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What he's asking you to do here is to imitate humility. It's to imitate humility. Look, if we understand the first two points, right? Anyone with basic logic understanding. First two points. If one, you are a steward, and two, you are not the judge, but the defendant, then a call to not be puffed up and be humble should flow naturally from that. Paul here is reminding the people of the previous section of the letter, we are products of grace, grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. If you have those things, it is not of yourself. Jesus tries to make that clear in another one of his parables, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Maybe you've heard this one. It's one of my favorite, Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down just to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Child of God, have you humbled yourself before God? Have you called out to him for salvation? Have you called out to him for redemption? Have you repented and believed? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have you humbled yourself before God? Are you meek before the king of kings? Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Paul continues in Corinthians by reminding us that to be meek, to be humble, is not just a state of mind. It is a life that is lived. Look at the life of Paul. He's going to go through some of his life as he 
continues, as he compares the life of the apostles to the comfortable life of the Corinthians he's speaking to, who have enough free time to sit around and judge others to see themselves as greater than other people in their worshiping communities. 1 Corinthians 4, 8-13. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you would have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in dispute. To present to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The thing he's calling for us here to imitate is simply this, to imitate suffering. To imitate suffering. This is the most anti-American dream thing I will say all morning. In, in America, we desire respect. We desire to be worthy in the eyes of others. We desire to be blessed. We desire comfort and ease, even if it means we are none of those things before God. Even if it would mean giving up our very souls. Jesus speaks to this too. Another parable. Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Every farmer in here saying, Amen. Right? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul. And if you speak that way. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Are you rich towards God? Those who are imitate suffering. They willingly give their time and their resources towards others at the expense of their own ease. Question, this always come up every time, so I have to answer it, okay? Does that mean we should not seek wealth? How dare you try to make a paycheck, right? Is that what he's saying here? Answer, not for wealth's sake. We don't seek wealth for wealth's sake. Again, remember the parable of the talents. Use what God has given you. Not for your own good, but remember that you are a steward and a servant. Now, whew, okay, that was a lot. That was a lot. That was heavy. Everyone breathe in with me. Breathe out with me. That's, that's, I mean, part of me wants to be done, right? But Paul's not, so I keep going. 
My fear is that in hearing the things that God calls you to imitate, you will feel much shame. If you're like me, I fail daily at pretty much all these things. I can do all these things better. I can have a mindset that's closer to Christ. I can be more and more in his image. And Paul reminded us in the first chapter that that's exactly what God's doing with us. He's making us more and more into his image. The Lord does not mean to bring you shame here, but to admonish you as beloved children. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. Let's talk about imitators again. Coming full circle. What did I say at the beginning? We are all imitators. Everyone in the room, we are all imitators. Question, who are you imitating? Who are you imitating? Maybe the more terrifying question. Who's imitating you? Who's imitating you? I've struggled with this all week. All week. Paul was a pastor of Corinth. He lived a life that was constantly judged by those under his care. He clearly did not meet his standards, their standards, was judged unjustly, and yet the disposition of his heart towards his people was a father, a spiritual father to them. One of the questions I've wrestled with every day in my office this week is this idea. The spirit is continually pressed against my heart this week, and it's this question. Am I, AJ, to be a father to you? That's a weird thought for me. Weird. Especially since I believe that many of you are much farther along in your spiritual journey than I. Uh, Men like Mark and Rick and Jack are old old enough to be my dad, right? And I look up to them and many of you in here. I don't know, if I'm being frank, as I've wrestled with the Spirit this week, I don't know if I can see myself as your spiritual father. And maybe that's my own sin. Maybe I need to work through that still. Pray for me. It's just a weird concept for me to grasp and grapple with. But I must see myself as the person in verse 16. As of one who many of you will imitate. 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. I, I must see myself as someone who will be imitated because of the spiritual role the Lord has placed me in your lives for where he's put me. And that scares me. You need to know that. That scares me. I do not feel worthy. It feels arrogant to say such a thing, does it not? Many of you would feel weird in your heart. You would feel as fools or arrogant to look at the person next to you and say, be imitators of me. 
Let's practice this right now so we can all feel uncomfortable together. Look at the person next to you and say, be imitator of me. On the count of three, one, two, three. Be an imitator of me. Good. Now we're all uncomfortable. We're there. And then it hit me. Oh, it hit me like a ton of bricks around Thursday. Child of God. There are already people who imitate you. There are already people that imitate you. And that should scare you and that should humble you. We already read some of the statistics, right? Dads, whether you want to or not, whether it makes you feel arrogant or not, you have great impact on the lives of your children. And we know from the data, there's like 50 years of data now, we know from the data that the children, your children's friends are impacted by you, the way you interact with them, greatly. They are imitating you. Mothers, same thing. You're not left out of it. There's not a get-out-of-jail-free pass for moms. Data's there for you, too. They are imitating you. Parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, older saints in the faith. That's everyone in here. We all in here? Everyone here. Whether you desire it or not, you give your spiritual children permission to sin in the sins that you permit. Whether you desire it or not, you give your spiritual children grace when you deliver grace. You condemn or commend your spiritual children by the way you live your lives before them. You set the tone. And by you, I mean the southern version, y'all. Y'all set the tone. Whether you want to or not. Whether you want to or not. The subtitle of the current sermon series, if you look at the front of your bulletin, is Mirrors of the Heart. And that's because the heart is a mirror. We are imitators, so we reflect our actions and ideas to the world. Likewise, we can be the source of reflection in the action and the ideas of others. We all are. And you can't cop out of that. There is no getting away from that. Even the father who has abandoned his kid, is sending to that child's heart the message that they are not worthy of their father's affection. And therefore, they're prone to mirror that lack of affection to others. We all have mirrors in the heart. And we all affect the mirrors in the hearts of others. Parents, we know this. Many of the things that you enjoy that get your heart beating fast on a Saturday during a ball game or during the week at an event, many of the things that you love, guess who ends up loving them? Your children. Duh, Pastor AJ, right? Why? Because we're imitators. We are natural mirrors. We imitate others. Everyone has a mirror and everyone is reflecting something because everyone is an imitator and everyone will eventually have someone imitating them. This is also clear in our vision statement as a church. Everyone a disciple. There is a desire as leadership here for everyone to be a disciple. That's the, that's the hope. But the statement also acknowledges that whether you want to or not, 
you are a disciple of something. Everyone is already a disciple. To riff on last week's sermon, the question is, whose disciple are you? Remember that, whose disciple? And everyone is already a disciple maker. The question is, whose disciple are you making? When Paul makes the statement, be imitators of me, he's not being cocky here. He is simply stating a fact. One that we know from the previous section of scripture is not rooted in his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. You see, when Paul says to be an imitator of him, he's really saying, be an imitator of Christ. And that's my prayer. That's my prayer. That as some of you would imitate me, you would not imitate my sin, but would only imitate the parts of me that reflect Christ. That by the grace of God, you would see past my deficiencies and you would only see the glories of Christ. It's the same prayer I know many of you pray for the people in your life, that they would see past your faults and they would see Christ shine through you. Because the best parts of you are the best parts of him. You see, in all the things that we're called to imitate today, in all the things we're called to imitate today, Christ has already done it. Christ is the suffering servant. Christ humbled himself. Christ became the defendant so you would not have to be to stand before the judge and to take the punishment that we deserved. Philippians 2, 5 and 8 reminds us of this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was not in the form of God, did not, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ died to save sinners. And we mirror that to the world as we enter into suffering of others. We go and make disciples of the nations as we imitate Christ, because that is what he did, and that is what he would have us do. So as we take communion, I'll end with a question for you to ponder. Who do you imitate? Who do you imitate? Before we take communion here, if it's your first time joining us, uh, it's communion week. We do that um, first Sunday of every month. I give you a time for confession. I give you a time for confession. That's intentional. Um, We are called as Christians to confess our sins before the Lord. So what I'm going to do here in light of the sermon is I'm going to um, pray a prayer of confession for us corporately as a body. What that does, the reason we do that is that it helps those who are new and young in the faith to learn how to pray, right? Because some of us, that's hard. Jesus even gave an example of how to pray, right? So I'll do that corporately as a body, and then I'm going to give you a few moments to confess your sins personally before the Lord. And then we'll move towards taking communion. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we confess what we imitate that we shouldn't. 
we confess that we become obsessed with things that have no eternal value. We confess that we partake of activities without the idea of being a servant or a steward anywhere in mind. We confess that like the foolish teenage girl, we try to manage a store that is not ours. Lord, you give us life. Lord, you give us purpose. And we do not imitate those things, but play God. Lord, we confess that we imitate false idols. And we ask that you would forgive us for doing that, that, those things. Take the next few moments, church family, and confess what you imitate wrongly to the Lord this morning. Take the next few moments. Thank you.